Welcome back to another episode of the Grind Culture Detox Podcast. This is where we discuss the ways in which grind culture has harmed our society on a variety of different levels, but more than just talking about the harm, we focus on creative solutions and thought-provoking questions to reconsider a life outside of grind culture. And you just heard a clip from... Lundrell, a really amazing mindfulness artist. And that is a part of his abundance meditation. And I couldn't think of a better way to start this episode than with talking about abundance and the fact that we do live on an abundant planet. And the human species is the only species on this planet that deals with money, that deals with finances. Somehow, all other creatures, all other flora and fauna are able to thrive, are able to live, are able to breathe, give birth, and pass away without having to exchange money whatsoever. But for whatever reason, the human species is connected to a monetary and debt system. And we're going to talk about it today. And we're going to talk about it from a lens of financial abuse. So This is why I've titled this episode, The Financial Abuse of Grind Culture. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, number one, um, the state of finances, specifically in the United States at this time. We're going to talk about a concept called sacred economics and how we might be able to apply sacred economics with reimagining grind culture. And uh, we're also going to talk about financial abuse and how it manifests on a macro scale, but also on a micro scale. And so I hope you enjoy this episode. See you soon. Okay, so for folks who don't know or who are tuning into this podcast for the first time, first of all, welcome. So good to have you. But I also wanted to briefly share what grind culture is. It is rooted in the belief that in order to be seen or viewed as valuable in our society, we must be productive. And grind culture abnormally shapes all of our structures in society, particularly as it relates to Western society, though. So this includes our economic system, our school system, and our family structures. And so why does this abnormally shape? Our society because right now our productivity is not just connected to our worth and value, but it's also connected to the resources a lot of times that we have access to in society. And uh, for the common person, if you're not a part of the 1%, um, a lot of times we've been trained to believe that in order to make it financially, we need to work really hard to do so. And I'm not saying that one percenters out there don't work as hard, but I think we all know of people who work a lot of hours. They might be working two or three jobs and yet might still not be able to cover rent or the basic essentials. And so this is kind of ludicrous because we do live on an abundant planet. And, um, but yet there's this like discrepancy right now. And so I want to share a little bit about what's happening with our housing shortage. We have a really big housing shortage in the United States in particular. 
And so some of the, the states offhand that are definitely experiencing a large housing shortage at the moment include California, Kentucky, Oregon, and Arizona, just to name a few. But here's the thing. This is what I want to talk about abundance too. I, I, abundance needs to be added into this conversation around financial abuse because we do live in an abundant world. And yet a lot of times it feels like resources are very scarce. And um, that just relates back to the gaslighting that grind culture a lot of times does to us. Um, they make us believe, you know, this system sometimes makes us believe that one thing is true when in fact another thing is true. And I unpack gaslighting a bit more in one of my previous episodes around grind culture and divorce. And um, if you're interested about learning more about that, you can go to that episode. But um, essentially gaslighting is on the rise right now. It was the most Googled word in 2022. So a lot of people have gaslighting on their minds, which means a lot of people are being impacted by gaslighting. So here's an example of gaslighting, right? We're told that there's a housing shortage. We're told that there's not enough housing for everyone. And yet, um, for example, in the city of Los Angeles, um, homelessness is a really big issue, right? And so there are currently 70,000 vacant apartment units in the city of Los Angeles, and there are... 69,000 homeless people in the county of Los Angeles. So housing is not scarce, okay? We don't necessarily have a, a housing shortage. We might have a distribution of wealth shortage, sure, but housing is very abundant. And um, Forbes actually did an article recently that showed that 16 million homes are vacant in the U.S. due to vacation rentals. And um, some of the the states that have the largest percentage of vacant homes include Maine, uh, which is, has 20% vacant homes, Vermont, which is another 20% vacant homes, and Alaska, which is 17%. Now, when we think of vacant homes, we're not talking about abandoned homes that are like in tatters. I'm talking about homes that are just a lot of times they go empty throughout the year because people aren't there. They're somewhere else. Maybe they're not using the home when they're away, right? They go to a warmer climate in the wintertime, that kind of thing. So that's just an example of the fact that we're told that scarcity is taking place when in all actuality, there is a, um, an abundance that's taking place. It's just that there's a mismanagement of resources that's happening. So that is a form of gaslighting. And um, I want to talk a little bit about sacred economics now. So this was a book written by Charles Einstein. It's a really thick book, but um, it's very, if you're interested in like learning about political science and, and economics and like with a little bit of a spiritual twist or an esoteric twist, then Sacred Economics is a really great read. And I reference it in my book, The Grind Culture Detox. And by the way, uh, if you haven't checked it out, please do. It really unpacks grind culture and this addiction that we have specifically to work in Western society and how it harms us on an emotional and a spiritual level. And it's available wherever books are sold. So in Sacred Economics, um, Charles Einstein highlights that the money we rely on to survive is actually what blocks the blossoming of our desire to give. 
keeping us in deadening jobs out of economic necessity. Our purpose for being is tied to the demands of money, which prevents us from ever feeling fully fulfilled. And he goes on to say that the assumption of scarcity is false. Scarcity is an illusion caused by the money system. Money doesn't cause greed, scarcity does. And so I think that's really an important thing to note because a lot of times we've heard this concept that money is the root of all evil. And I don't agree with that, actually. I do think that there is something that needs to fundamentally shift around our attitudes about money. But money in itself is just paper. It's just an agreement that we've collectively made in our collective consciousness um, to provide worth and value to. But when we notice the inflation rates that are happening um, in our country in particular at this time, they're very high right now. Our inflation rates just constantly get higher. And just looking at inflation alone shows that there is somewhat of a myth to the value of money. Money is based upon the agreement that we make around how much it is worth, right? Um, so that's why a lot of folks are like investing now more in like silver and gold because there is this understanding that the monetary system is not finite, you know? Um, at the end of the day, if inflation gets too high, those, you know, that those pieces of currency just become, you know, pieces of paper, right? So um, that's just something to consider um, is not the necessarily the fact that money is the problem, but our relationship to money is becoming quite a big problem. And I would actually say it is financially abusive. It's a form of financial abuse. And so I'm going to describe what financial abuse is at this time. So Financial or economic abuse is when um, when uh, one intimate partner has control over the other partner's ability to access, acquire, use, or maintain economic resources, which diminishes the victim's capacity to support themselves and forces an intentioned dependence. Now, you might be wondering why I'm even reading out that particular definition because, um, you know, if I'm talking about grind culture on a large scale, that's that has nothing to do with intimate partners or so we would think. But I would actually say that there is an interrelated connection with the way that we're kind of um, forced to work and sacrifice the needs of our bodies, minds, and spirits in order to produce and to keep up with our economic system, which quite frankly, continues to fail us. And it's just, we're just seeing it more and more with the rising costs of living all across the globe, basically, but specifically as it relates to the U.S. Um, we're definitely seeing that uh, it's not really a viable or sustainable option for us to keep up with in the long term. So I'll give you another example of what I mean when I say that. So according to Pew Research Center, the share of adults who live in middle-class households fell from 61% in 1971 to 50% in 2021, okay? So our middle class is shrinking and declining. And so with the shrinking and declining middle class, what that means is that less people are able to 
meet their basic needs and then also like save and purchase property and all that kind of stuff. And um, it makes it more of a struggle. It makes us stay on this hamster wheel of scarcity, right? And we're getting less and less reward than we used to get. And so in the the episode around grind culture divorce, I really, um, grind culture and divorce, excuse me, I really do break down some of the number, like the divorce statistics and how a lot of times marriages are, um, you know, we, we stay together in marriages, even if these marriages are abusive in whatever way, because of finances, because a lot of times people are afraid to leave the marriage because of the economic repercussions. So a lot of folks end up like kind of staying together miserable because, um, they literally can't afford to be a single, um, a single earning household. And, um, you know, single earning households used to be a thing back in the day, right? Um, but with the rising costs of inflation, with the rising epidemic of grind culture, um, that has really become a thing of the past, right? And so you see a lot of couples staying together just to kind of make ends meet as opposed to the fact that they love each other and and care about each other. I'm not saying that's always the case. I'm saying that the statistics show that it's increasingly becoming more of the case. Um, and so in this episode, I also break down some of the um, inflation statistics, how when the when the uh, when inflation rises in the U.S., divorces, uh, the divorce rate goes down. And that's just because economically, it's not a good time to get divorced, right? And so that's really a shame because when we think about the what we were sold about this American dream and marriage as being a part of this American dream, it's very much built on romance. It's very much built on love. It's very much built on family. And yet grind culture has intercepted a lot of these values and um, marriage then just becomes about earning a dollar <laughs> and keeping a dollar. And I find that quite shameful. And so I want to share a little bit more about financial abuse. And now I want to zoom in. So I zoomed out and I talked about some of the macro level statistics around um, a declining economic reality in the United States in particular. And now let's talk about the the household and financial abuse. So according to the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence, financial abuse occurs in 98% of abusive relationships and is the number one reason victims stay in and return to abusive relationships. So it's kind of a big deal. But here's the thing. Not everybody actually believes that financial abuse is actually a thing. And so I'll give you an example of that. So um, according to this same study uh, by the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence, 78% of Americans don't recognize financial abuse as domestic abuse. Okay. So that is, um, that's pretty interesting when we think about it, because, you know, I'll agree. Like I usually think of, I've used, I used to think of domestic violence more as like getting beat, 
getting raped, that sort of thing. And I'm not saying that those things don't happen in large numbers. Um, I will say, you know, when I exited my marriage, uh, it was not because of the more visceral types of domestic violence. It was because of the more subtle and covert types of domestic violence. And for me, that definitely showed up in uh, financial abuse and also uh, psychological abuse and emotional abuse. But a lot of it was actually tied to finances and just um, the stress of living in a hyper-capitalist economy and also living in basically one of the most expensive areas in the world, which is the San Francisco Bay Area. So um, yeah, definitely check out that divorce, that grind culture and divorce podcast, because I really do break down some of the numbers around like what's happening happening in an economic reality that we're currently facing. Um, but I also want to share a little bit around my story as being a former military spouse. So a lot of people don't necessarily know that about me, that um, I was a military spouse for um, the past um, few years. And, um, you know, my soon-to-be ex-husband was in the Coast or is in the Coast Guard. And, you know, I was lucky as a military spouse. It's actually kind of unheard of um, my particular situation. (laughs) The whole time I knew my my husband, like when we were dating and all that stuff, um, he was stationed in the same place. He's been able to be stationed in the San Francisco Bay Area for several years. And I know that that is not the typical reality of a military family. Okay. So I am speaking from an atypical military reality. But what I will say is I did um, experience a lot of the, the, um, the financial oppression that could sometimes happen amongst military spouses. And it took me a while to actually see it. And I think, you know, that's another thing about psychological and emotional abuse and financial abuse. It takes time to understand that it's happening to you. Like, you know, when you think about more of the visceral forms of abuse, like they're kind of more obvious, but um, a lot of like psychological and emotional abuse can be explained away through gaslighting, which once again is the most, was the most searched term in 2022. Uh, so I think a lot of people might be experiencing this and that's why I'm being called to share, share this information. Um, because I wish I had listened to something like this, um, or I had gotten my hands on something like this and, um, it would have helped me to not feel as isolated. So I'm really trying to um, do this as a collaborative effort and as a show of solidarity. If anybody is kind of suffering from this right now and is feeling a little confused by it, um, is feeling a little down and out about it, um, I just kind of want to share my story to uplift. And so um, one thing is that the unemployment and underemployment rate among military spouses is actually uh, remains very high. There was actually just a white paper that was published by USAA that explains the financial realities, the bleak financial realities that military spouses go through. And a lot of that, I'm going to explain three reasons why military spouses go through such a bleak financial reality. And so that includes frequent permanent change of station moves that occur every 2.5 to 3 years. So now this is a reality I didn't have to experience. I stayed in the in the Bay Area the whole time of of my marriage. So 
I didn't have to experience the frequent moving, but one thing I did highlight in my last divorce episode is that when women do take time off to care to uh, do caretaking, it takes them longer to actually get rehired after a gap in employment. It takes men a lot less time to get rehired. So I could imagine how, um, you know, frequent changing, you know, frequent moving around the nation, right, and trying to find jobs, it, it the types of jobs you're able to get um, definitely lessen. So for example, um, one thing that my research shows is that there are a lot of military wives that they do get their degrees and, you know, they do the things that our society says that we should do to become employable. But a lot of times they're not able to utilize their college degrees because they're constantly moving. And, um, you know, also if your employer catches on to the fact that you are a military spouse, sometimes there is employment discrimination because automatically this potential employer is thinking, well, I don't know if I want to invest in this person because they're going to move soon, you know? So then you kind of end up getting boxed into these more, um, these jobs that are more temporary, more seasonal jobs, maybe more retail jobs, things that are, are hourly pay that maybe you don't get a lot of retirement benefits for. So it does kind of like squeeze military spouses into a very particular economic reality, despite what their education levels are. So I didn't have to deal with that. But one thing that really did impact me and my ability to um, navigate a particular work environment and schedule, um, well, basically that made me um, had to be like, okay, I don't know if I can do this whole nine to five salaried position sort of thing. Um, and that was unpredictable work schedule of the service member. So um, this wasn't so bad um, before the COVID pandemic. There was a lot more of a sense of normalcy around the scheduling. So we would usually get um, my my ex-husband's schedule about um, a month to two months prior um, to when you know, his schedule would change every month, but we would have enough time and notice to kind of prepare for it. But two things shifted. Number one, the COVID pandemic, obviously. And um, with that, that just meant more people sometimes had to call in sick um, or, you know, there were sometimes COVID scares, that sort of thing. And um, yeah, so with that being said, the scheduling got very erratic to the point where it was like, you know, sometimes I wouldn't know um, my ex-husband's schedule until like a week out, you know, and so that would be that would kind of leave things really topsy-turvy for me. And a lot of times I wasn't necessarily able to book workshops or to book um, employment gigs for myself um, because I would be kind of waiting on scheduling. And the reason why I'd be waiting on scheduling is due to the third reason that kind of leaves military spouses out in the cold many times, which I was very much impacted by, which was expensive or unavailable childcare options. So you know, you'd get to this point of, okay, I would need to get childcare in order to work. But then it was like, okay, can I get, can I afford this childcare to work? You know, is it really worth the time and investment in resources to, um, to do childcare and work at the same time? So, um, this, these were real realities that, um, showed up in my marriage and, definitely led to more of like a financially abusive dynamic, 
I would say. Um, and a lot of that had to do with um, the following. I'm actually going to pull up some of the um, some of the indications of financial abuse. So some of the indicate, and I'm not saying I, I experienced all of these. I'm going to read them all out just in case there's anyone out there who is experiencing this at this time. So um, you can kind of think it through. Um, so not all of these apply to my situation, but many do. So um, they include placing the victim at home spouse on an allowance, discouraging or denying the victim an opportunity to work, denying the victim decision-making power about financial decisions, the abusive spouse makes more money and maintains individual bank and investment accounts. The abusive spouse holds all credit cards in their name. The abusive spouse hides and moves assets. The abusive spouse uses marital funds for an affair, substance abuse, or gambling addiction. The abusive spouse openly accuses the victim of financial incompetence. The abusive spouse keeps the victim in the dark about the value of... Um, Oh, I missed that one. Sorry, y'all. Um, the abusive spouse keeps the victim in the dark about the value of um, marital investments. And so um, those don't all apply to me, but definitely the ones around, you know, kind of being accused of financial incompetence, um, not having the credit cards in my name. Um, and, you know, a lot of these things looking back, I'm like, well, Heather, you should have like maybe been a little bit more savvy, right? Financially savvy. And that's, that, that was my shadow work to do, or is my shadow work to do around, um, when did I decide to give so much of my power away in the relationship? And I think a lot of that has to do with my own conditioning around, um, what a, a man's role in the household was versus a woman's household role in the household was. So it's like feminist as I like to think I am, or as empowered as I'd like to think I am. And I, I actually, I'm not really a feminist, um, but I am very empowered in my in my womanhood and in my 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 feminine identity, and I believe that um, you know women are awesome, fem identified folks are awesome, we're amazing, and I'm very empowered and proud of that. Um, and at the same time, I also held on to a lot of some traumas, um, some financial traumas, and. Um, yeah, and I think that that showed up in in um, my marriage as well. So um, definitely want to take accountability for where um, I missed the mark on things. And yet, um, I can definitely say that I was in a financially abusive relationship, among other things. And so why am I sharing this? Because as I wrote about grind culture more from the perspective of the workplace, when I initiated my next level of the grind culture detox process at home and realized how much my marriage and my family was connected and tied into finances and my worth and my value was very much dependent upon how much I was able to produce and how much money I was able to earn, um, I can't not make this connection. And um, I like to look at things from a systems thinking approach. I think it's more important to... Um, look at the system as opposed to the individual. I think that significant shifts can be made. And um, these numbers are pretty startling around how many people experience financial abuse and emotional and psychological abuse. Um, the CDC has referred to 
domestic violence as being an epidemic in our country. It's something that a lot of people are going through at the moment and domestic violence is on the rise because of the pandemic and because of the harsh financial realities that we're facing. And so I think we need to have more open, honest and candid conversations around financial abuse. Um, Because if we don't, if we just kind of ignore the elephant in the room, then um, harm continues to be perpetuated. Um, and it, these, these, this harm is, is done in cycles, you know, and it's, it's done intergenerationally. And so a big part of my purpose and mission at this time is to break intergenerational cycles of trauma, not just in my own family line, but um, also doing my part to support with breaking cycles of trauma in our society as well. I think that the harsh financial realities that we face that we're currently facing do provide us with an opportunity to reimagine how we do things, um, to reimagine how we live and work. And so I, I find this to be an opportunity as well. And so um, I want to end this podcast episode on a more uplifting note. I know it can be kind of a downer, kind of a buzzkill to talk about abuse, right? Um and a lot of people don't want to hear about it because it's it's a downer. Um, but what I will say is something that I think will save us is leaning into gratitude, um, leaning into abundance. So abundance and gratitude do have a, um, a good link with each other. So the more we can focus on what's right in our world, the more that we can focus on the good that's happening, the more we open ourselves up to abundance. So the thing about grind culture is it does keep us on this toxic hamster wheel of scarcity, always thinking that we have to overproduce because we're never good enough, right? So we always have to do more, more, more. This takes us um, away from our time to heal. This takes us away from our time to be with our families. It takes us away from our time to, to be in joy and to, to thrive. And so, um, Circling back to how I started this podcast, the human species is the only species on this planet currently that um, can't live right now without money. And I am here to just ask the question, does it always have to be that way? And I'm not doing this from like a hippy dippy pie in the sky approach. Like I'm really asking the question, like, do we have to work to live on this planet? And is that a sustainable model for the human species to continue to exist, um, especially as we see the rising rates of AI. Um, you know, we just saw these tech layoffs that happen. Um, Google, they did their, their most massive layoff yet. 12,000 people they laid off just in one go. And um, a lot of that was due to what they are claiming to be the harsh financial realities. But let's face it, it's also because of the rise of AI. It's also the the rise of the fact that, you know, maybe humans aren't needed for as many of the jobs as they used to be needed for. So if we keep on uh, trying to exist within a world of grind culture where we're only worth what we're able to produce, we're going to price ourselves out of existing. And so um, with that being said, uh, really think about focusing on abundance, right? What are the, the things that What's what's right that's happening in your life? Where are our sources of abundance happening? You know, outside of the news stories, the scary news stories, 
the scary statistics around what's happening in our economy. Where are Where is abundance outside of money in your world at this time? And grounding into that, claiming gratitude for that. And with that, you will find more abundant opportunities occur. Um, I can say that gratitude has saved me many, many times in my life. And I have found amazing opportunities for abundance just by focusing in on gratitude. It is a very powerful medicine. It also helps to alleviate depression. It helps to alleviate anxiety. It helps our, our you know, it literally helps our hearts and it helps us to breathe better. So there is a very important medicine in gratitude. And so I'm going to leave you with another song just to kind of like stay within that abundance framework. And uh, always remember, y'all, that thriving is your birthright. And, uh, you know, if you're interested, drop me a line at collab at thrivingwithheather.com if you want to share your notes about this particular episode. And also feel free to donate to the Grind Culture Detox um, the podcast because with a, an abundance mindset, we circulate. We circulate gifts, knowing that when we circulate gifts, they come back to us in other ways. And so if you're interested in donating, you can find the Cash App link in, um, in the description. And until next time, bye.